Good stuff. Well, turn with me, please. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. Just, you know, steal somebody else's or just listen along. But if you've got a Bible, turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. For those of you that are less informed about this book, I haven't been around Ephesians at all. It's a book that's been written by the Apostle Paul. He's a dude that got saved in Acts chapter 9. And so he was a man that actually was the most unlikely salvation you've ever come across in your life. He was a persecutor of Christians. He used to want to kill Christians. He was, in effect, a Christian terrorist seeking to kill Christians at length. And yet God met him. Jesus encountered him, and he became a Christian. Incredibly, then, he gave his life to starting and planting churches across the Roman Empire. Nearly over a third of the New Testament is actually then written by him. And here in this book, we have an incredibly long sentence. It runs from the start of verse 3 to the end of verse 14. And although we have full stops and commas, praise God, he didn't write that in. This is called a baraka. It is one long celebratory sentence. And I can't think of a better sentence for us to attend to today, Easter Sunday. So let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, how wonderful it is to gather around your word on Resurrection Sunday. Lord, in just the same way that you are alive, this word is alive. This word speaks to hearts. This word can break hearts open in a moment. Lord, I pray that that's what would happen this morning. Lord, would we take something that is often familiar? And would it be as if we hear it for the first time? Lord, would we have childlike disposition today as we gather around your word and we see all that you have done in Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. It was this past week, 13 years ago now, that I had my one and only operation. I had an appendicitis in the United States of America when we lived there for a year, and I nearly died, actually, and and it actually erupted and went all over my body, and I took about six weeks to 
recover from that. I, I weighed only about 52 kilos at the time, and I lost another five kilos, so that was bad news at that time. But one saving grace of the recovery was when I turned on the television in America. American TV isn't very good, but there was one show on it which is called The Price is Right, which is like a saving grace. Do we have The Price is Right here in Australia? Oh, that is just, is it, is it still on? Oh, that's such a sadness. That's, you, you held up such expectations that it went down. For those of you that haven't seen The Price is Right, it's an absolute classic. It's a game show. And the way it's all orchestrated, the way it's done, is you watch the, watch the show. Right at the start of the show, they invite contestants down from the audience. So they just pick at random and say, you know, Alexandra Bingham, come on down. And she comes running down with her arms in the air. And, and then they discuss all the different things. And they basically have a panel. And they have different things come onto the stage. And they have to guess what price they are. And whoever is the closest wins and goes through to the next round, and then they win another prize and get through the, name, the, the end round. And if you get all the way to the final, the best bit about the show is right at the final, whoever wins, wins absolutely masses of prizes. So they get a car and they get a speedboat. And when you're in England, who needs a speedboat? It's too cold. But they win a speedboat. They win a convertible car that they'll never use. They win a dishwasher and a washing, washing machine. And there's holidays on there. The whole stage is literally dripping with all these prizes. And right at the end of the show, my favorite bit every time, is the presenter grabs the hands of the contestant and runs on the stage and starts showing them around all the prizes. And he's more excited than they are. He's just bragging about all these things that they've won. And I love that bit. I like the excitement in his face. I like the excitement in their faces as they're realizing what they've got as prizes. Well, the reason why for me I want to bring that up is because I think that final scene of one excited presenter showing people around the stage is exactly what is happening here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 15. See, in so many ways, this is exactly like that. Here we have one excited apostle running onto the stage with a whole load of prizes that he wants to show you. He wants you to see how great your salvation is. He wants to start bragging to you about, look at what you have in Jesus Christ. Now, make no mistake, as you attend this text, everything which we are about to hear about has been earned for us by Jesus Christ. You and I have earned none of it. That's what Easter is all about. It's all about Jesus Christ and his grace coming after us in his personal work, on clothing himself in flesh, God himself coming on a rescue mission, dying on a cross and then rising again three days later. And yet this text tells us that through him and in him, a comment that it makes over ten times, you have been given a wealth of prizes that aim and poise themselves on your lives. And one excited apostle right here wants to tell you all about it. You see, we haven't earned these prizes ourselves, but they are ours. And they are ours to celebrate on Easter Sunday. And I trust that as we look at these together, that we'll be humbled. I trust that we'll be grateful. I trust that as Christians and non-Christians alike, as we gather around this stuff, that we'll be truly amazed looking at what God has done through the gift of his son. And what prizes then in this great salvation are poised on your life? And so four things I want us to look at and be excited about this morning. Four prizes the Apostle Paul wants to show us around that have been earned by Jesus Christ in our place. Number one, the prize of redemption. 
See, if you're a Christian here today, you have been completely and utterly redeemed. Look with me at verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Through the death of Jesus Christ, sovereign grace, you have been redeemed. Now, that's an incredible truth. But in our generation, that doesn't seem quite so incredible because we don't use the word redemption very much. But to these guys, when they first got this letter, they would know exactly what it was. And this was an incredible truth. See, redemption has its roots in the ancient marketplace. In the Roman Empire at this time, in New Testament times, most business would have been done in the ancient marketplace. So you want to buy fruit, you want to buy food, you want to buy clothing, you want to buy household goods, you're going to go to the marketplace. And the big business of the time in the marketplace was the buying and selling of slaves. And slaves were common. In the Roman Empire, it's estimated that at this season of time, there were over six million slaves. So slavery would be very common. And in the ancient marketplace, you would go and you would buy and sell slaves right there. And the incredible thing is, slavery wasn't hard to come by and slavery wasn't hard to get into, in part because of the effects of poverty. You see, there's no welfare state in ancient Rome at this time. If you start to run out of money... No one is going to say, well, you know what, let us help you from the government. You would starve and your family would starve around you. And so what became commonplace is our family member, usually an older brother or a father or a mother, would sell themselves into slavery. And by selling themselves into slavery, the owner would give your family money and that's what would keep the family alive. And they designed it so that by law, after you've done that, there would be one way, just one way, but one way that that family member could then be brought out of slavery. And it was called a ransom. The family could raise enough money and pay the ransom to the owner of the slave. And as a result of that, they could come back home. Well, that is exactly the scene that Paul has in mind here when he's talking about redemption. And as he tours us around this prize of redemption. Because the reality of Scripture tells us that every one of us in this room was, in fact, a slave to sin. A slave to sin and a slave to the consequences of sin. Paul tells us himself in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He tells us very clearly that we walked following the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air and we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, he tells us, objects of wrath. It's what we saw last week. What does it mean to be an object of his wrath? Well, it is to be an object of his righteous, holy anger at our sin. And Paul tells us himself in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, And you were without hope in the world. He's making it very clear. You were dead. You were completely dead. You may as well go and preach into a cemetery because that's who you were. You were dead, lifeless, responseless in your sin. You were an object of his wrath. You were on a collision course upon death with his righteous wrath and you were without hope. You were hopeless in your situation. And yet you know what? Right here he tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood. What does he mean? Well, what he means is this, that God, according to the riches of his grace, 
even when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, even when you were a slave to sin and its consequences, sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever seen. He clothed himself in flesh and he came after you. He was born to a virgin Mary. He then lived a perfect life. At the age of 33, died on a rugged cross, claiming throughout his entire life that I am God. And if you believe in me, you will have life in my name. What was he doing on the cross then? Was it just a tragic accident? Was it a mistake? Was it something that went wrong? No, he made it clear himself. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm paying a ransom for many. My friends, through the blood of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, Jesus Christ has paid your ransom. You have been redeemed from your slavery. You and I are completely free. We are no longer slaves to sin's penalty. No longer slaves to sin's guilt or power. You and I have been completely and utterly redeemed because our ransom that was needed to release us from slavery has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. Is that good news? It's incredible news. No wonder the Apostle Paul is saying, check this out. Look at this. You've been redeemed. You were once dead in your transgressions and sins. You were a slave to that sin, to its penalty and its power, but not anymore. Through the blood of Jesus, you have been completely and utterly redeemed. That is scandalous grace, but what grace? Kent Hughes, in his excellent commentary on the Ephesians, tells of a story that I think describes it in another way, but I think it's so helpful to understanding what redemption is. This is your story. He says this, He says, in a city on the shore of a great lake lived a small boy. His name was John, and he seriously loved both the water and sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, spent months making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail at the water's edge. One day, a sudden gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out into the lake and out of sight. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then, one day, as he was walking through town, he saw his beautiful boat and a store window. He approached the proprietor and announced his ownership, only to be told that it was not his. For the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for the boat, and if the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay the price. So the lad set himself to work, doing anything and everything, until finally he returned to the store with the money. And at last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said this with great joy. You are twice mine now, because I made you and because I brought you back. My friends, as Christians, that's your story. You are twice now his. Because he made you and he sang over you. But you rejected him in your sin. And yet he sent his son to die in your place to buy you back. You've been redeemed. How incredible is that? What a gracious and great salvation we have. The apostle Paul then skips us up onto the stage and he wants us to show you. He wants you to see you've been redeemed. This is your story. You were a slave to sin, but not anymore. Jesus has paid the ransom for your sin. But that's not all. 
wants, wants to move us on now to another prize. Prize two, the prize of forgiveness. Look again at verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That word lavished is probably one of my favorite words in this one long celebratory sentence. Lavished. You want to know what God is like? He's not some stingy God that says, oh, you know, I already feel like I've given you a lot. He's a God that takes all the grace in the universe and says, I want to lavish it upon you. I want to give you everything because I love you and I'm for you and you are mine. So he redeems us and as an expression of his grace that he's lavishing upon us, he also forgives us. (laughs) That's incredible. See, as redeemed people in Christ, we have also been completely and utterly been forgiven of our sin. Romans 3, as we saw last week, says there is no one righteous, not even one. If you're in doubt of that, see me at the end. I'll take you through the Ten Commandments and we'll see how we go. You will discover, yes, we've all fallen short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's just a fact. And yet Romans 4 verse 7 tells us, but blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Sovereign Grace, that's your story. If you've been redeemed by the Lord, then you have also been forgiven by God because blessed are those whose lawless deeds are not held against them anymore. They've been forgiven. Insert your name into that. Blessed is Dave whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Insert your name into that psalm and it comes alive before your eyes. As you realize this is your story. Total forgiveness is totally undisturbed and yet in reality it is totally available and totally complete in Jesus Christ. That's what he's done. When he died on the cross, gross and horrendous though that was, he didn't leave any unforgiven sin in that moment. He didn't say, oh, oh, that one's a bit much. He said, no, I'm dying for that. I'm dying for that one. I'm coming after you. And I'm going to make a way for you to be completely washed clean. One of my favorite writers, John Newton, an 18th century slave trader, an Englishman who gave his life prior to becoming a Christian to buying and selling African slaves, many who he treated very, very badly. He encountered Jesus Christ, became a Christian, wrote many hymns. Check this one out. This is a great hymn. He says, in evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death. Though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. Listen to this one. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou may live. 
Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of his grace, it seals my pardon too. Friends, that's what he's done for you. The cross displays your sin in all its blackest hue. But such is the mystery of his grace. In that moment, he was sealing your pardon too. He was taking all your sin, past, present and future, and was taking it on in his place. So that he could turn around and say to you, Blessed are you whose lawless deeds are forgiven. You've been washed clean. My friends, if you're here today and you are a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you have this sin in your life, some specific past sin or period of time, and you've asked for forgiveness many, many times from the Lord. And yet it's still like you carry it around with you. It still enters into your face all the time. Or maybe you're aware of something that you've even done this week. This very week in your life that you, you've gone to the Lord and asked for his forgiveness and yet you carry it with you. Here's my encouragement to you. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you must look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. An end. Did you get that? An end. It is gone. You're carrying the consequence of a sin that he's already carried for you. You don't need to carry it anymore because he has done it all. It is an insult to him, as if to say it wasn't enough. It was enough. He's dealt with your sin. He's taken your sin. He's forgiven your sin. Psalm 103 simply tells us it has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Paul himself is the self-confessed chief of sinners. Paul himself remembers times when he would drag women through the streets on their hair so that they could get killed because of their Christianity. And yet right here, he says and makes it clear, there is therefore now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. It is scandalous grace, but it is true and it is complete and Jesus has done it all. That's why the apostle is so excited. That's why he so wants to skip us around the stage. And he wants to stop on this one and say, in the same way I was forgiven, you're forgiven. It's scandalous grace, but it's true. If you're carrying... Sin in your life, as if to say, God, God can't forgive that one. My friends, be released from that today. Because I want you to know, at Easter, 2,000 years ago, he paid for your sin in full. He dealt with it. It is finished. What is finished? The consequences of your sin. It's gone. Let it go. Kent Hughes, once again. He says it this way. Love this. He says, total forgiveness is something to celebrate. It is beyond anything positive thinking, therapy, or hypnosis can provide. It is complete, extending to the conscious and unconscious sins in our lives. Don't you love that? Did you realize that? You've been forgiven not only of things you know you've done. You've been forgiven of things you didn't even know you did. But you did. Because God knows all things. And because Jesus' blood is infinite. I remember my first experience of God's forgiveness and how his Holy Spirit gave me the assurance that my sins were totally forgiven. The burden was so consciously lifted that I felt as if I could float. And anyone can be forgiven, no matter what their sin is, 
whether they are the commander of Auschwitz or the most immoral person in the world, total forgiveness, listen, total forgiveness is possible and indeed complete through Jesus Christ. Amen to that. See, the Apostle Paul takes us on the stage and he shows us around redemption and makes it clear, this is your story. This is what God's done for you, but that's not all. He's also made it possible for you to be forgiven. This is what he's achieved for you in your place through his blood and through faith in his blood. He has washed you clean. But that's not all. He's not done. Prize number three, the prize of adoption. Look with me at verse five. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I love this one. You see, to be redeemed from a slavery is incredible. To be forgiven of your sin is scandalous grace and should fuel worship for eternity, just to consider that truth. And yet God didn't just leave us there. To be redeemed is amazing. To be forgiven is amazing. To be, by the, by the way, justified. By the nature of being redeemed and forgiven, you're also justified. You've been declared righteous. But that's not where the story concludes. The story doesn't conclude with justification or forgiveness or redemption. It culminates in adoption. J.I. Packer then, in his wonderful work, Knowing God, And chapter 19 says this about adoption. He says, for it is here then, in adoption, that we encounter the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love. I believe he's right. Listen as he carries on and unpacks that. He says, justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of us in the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And that is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand. Listen, that's you. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless and miserable. And in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Isn't that wonderful? So there's a greater and a greater still? Yes. To be right with God the judge. That's incredible. To know that God has redeemed us from our sin and forgiven us from our sin. That's scandalous grace and absolutely incredible. And yet there's a greater still. Because God in his grace then doesn't just forgive us and redeem us and say, okay, well, on your way. 
He says, I've redeemed you and I've forgiven you. And now I want you to be a part of my family. I want to watch over you as a father. I want to care for you as a dad does. And my friends, what Paul is trying to communicate through these verses is if you're a Christian, that's your story. He's not only redeemed you and forgiven you, he's adopted you. You are people who were once his enemies. You and I are people who were once running away from God. He sent his son for us so that we can not only be redeemed and forgiven, but so that he could say to you, child, although you were once my enemy, I want you to now sit at my table because I love you as a father. I want to care for you. My friends, that's why as Christians we can say, you know, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the the maker of heaven and earth. Why is it that we can declare that? We can declare that because God has adopted us. He's taken you and I and made us a part of his family. Just like with Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. And God, in his grace, amazingly saves her. And then he doesn't just save her and then send her on her way. He saves her and he brings her into the very bloodline of Jesus Christ. That is abounding grace. And it's just like your story. God takes us from where we were and he knits us in and makes us part of the very family of God. My friends, you're not only redeemed, not only forgiven, you're a child of the king. Now, as the apostle Paul shows us around these different things, he must be so excited to be able to communicate this to the church. And he must be so excited as he considers all that the Lord has done. Thus far, he's taught us around prizes that all originated in the past, but are all relating to the present, aren't they? We are right now, as Christians, redeemed. We are right now, as Christians, forgiven. We are right now, as Christians, adopted. But in verses 9 to 10, he he takes us to one final prize that he wants to show us around. It's a prize that also originated in the past, but it doesn't take place in the present. It relates to the future. Something still to come. Let's look at it, verse 9. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, my friends, for Christians... Death is not the end. Death is just an advert. Death is not the end of life's joys. For Christians, in reality, it really is just the beginning. D.L. Moody, the famous preacher, once said this, and I absolutely love it. It's lived with me all my life since I heard it. He's actually very ill at the time, and he says to his friends around his bedside, he says, someday soon, you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. But don't believe a word of it. Because in that moment, I will be more alive than ever before. See, Moody's a man that understood the resurrection. He's a man that understood that Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. He made it clear in just the same way that he rose from death. We will, as Christians, never die. So yes, my heart will stop, but I will live on. So don't go mourning after me. Because when I die, I wouldn't come back to you even if I could. Because when I die, 
I will be more alive than ever before. And my friends, that is exactly, I believe, what Paul is seeking to focus on, focus us on here in verses 9 and 10. He's seeking to focus us onto a future prize, a prize to come, a prize that we know as heaven, a prize that one day we will all know as home. And what a day that will be. And what a place that will be. I mean, just imagine it with me for a moment. A place where there is no more pain, no more arthritis, no more mental illness, no more speech disorders, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more tooth decay or heart attacks or eczema, no more broken down bodies, no more blindness, no more earaches, no more disorders. There will be a place where there will be no more sin. We'll no longer be reading in our papers or experiencing one of our friends or colleagues being raped or enjoying, enduring theft or murder or fear or immorality or drunkenness or crime or war. A place where there will be no more death or decay of corruption. That will all be gone. That will all be wiped clean. It will all be dealt with. A place instead that will be filled with laughter. I mean, what is it going to be like on that day to hear the maker of heaven and earth laugh? Are you not looking forward to that? The one who made laughs, I want to hear his laugh. I want to hear his joy. I want to hear his excitement, all that is taking place. Heaven will be one big explosion of joy. The Bible tells us there will be feasting together and drinking together. There will be music and worship. It will be a place that will be a paradise for trees and fields and beaches and seas and glaciers. Everything we see in this earth is just a mere foretaste of what is to come. Every piece of creation that you see on this earth, every piece of art, every piece of carpentry, every piece of sculpture, God has given that man or woman the gifts to do that. And right now he is busy building a place for you. Doesn't that just blow your mind to consider how great that's going to be? God is the master architect of heaven. And he is building it for us. And once there, we won't just be running around as we are now. We'll be made perfect. We won't just become angels or ghosts, thank goodness for that. Instead, our bodies and souls will be made new and they will be transformed and made perfect. You'll still be recognized. You'll still carry your same name. And yet you will run and walk and touch and speak and think in glorious perfection in a way you can barely imagine on this earth. And when we are there running around this glorious perfection in our new bodies, I'm just hoping I can run really fast in heaven. That's all I'm asking. Because I just want to be able to run like the wind, if there's any way. When we are there in that moment, we won't be alone. Hell is described in Scripture as a place of aloneness. Heaven is described in Scripture as a place of joy with people. There will be angels who we'll be with. There will be people from of old. There will be Noah. We'll ask him what he thinks of the movie. There will be Moses, King David, Joshua, Enoch, Paul and Peter, all the greats of old. You'll be able to talk to them and ask them, Paul, what was that like? When Jesus himself encountered you on the Damascus Road, what was that like? What was it like to experience that type of grace in that moment? What was it like to pray for people and see in a moment people raised from the dead? Paul, what was that like? We'll be able to engage with all these people from old and we will be there with every Christian from every tribe and every language and nation. But most of all, he will be there. The one who died on a cross 
and rose again three days later to earn these prizes for us, he will be there to greet you. What's that going to be like? Wayne Grudem, describing that moment, says, when we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had to know perfect love, peace and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty. When we finally see the Lord face to face, listen, our hearts will want for nothing else. My friends, what a day that will be, don't you think? And as the Apostle Paul then shows us around this stage, he wants us to know, heaven, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, heaven awaits you. You've not earned it, but Jesus Christ earned it in your place. Heaven is going to be your home. This isn't a doubtful thing. Jesus Christ is the resurrection. If he rose again, then so will you. You will be with him for all eternity in paradise. And if you've ever wondered, could I lose that? I wondered that for many years. I thought you could. Until actually reading verse 13 and 14. Can you lose it? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So the moment I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, yes, Paul, what happens? Oh, in that moment, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I love that. Can I lose it? Well, only if the Bible is lying. Only if you didn't receive the Holy Spirit. The whole premise there is if you believed in him, in that moment you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The seal that he's talking about there is the seal of a king. When a king wanted to seal something and put his mark on something, they would put candle wax on something and the king would take his signet ring and he'd pour it on the candle wax and everybody knew that's been sealed by the king. That's a guarantee. That's exactly what he's saying here. You, upon salvation, have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. What's he doing? Oh, he's guaranteeing your inheritance. For how long? Until you acquire possession of it. Can I lose my salvation? Only if the Bible's lying. Only if Jesus has indeed lost some that the Father gave to him. Only if he's incapable of hanging on to you. God, in his grace, seals you with the promised Holy Spirit. So when you become a Christian, as the Apostle Paul shows us round, you're redeemed. Your sin has been dealt for in full. The penalty of your sin, the consequence of your sin, the power of your sin has been chopped in two, and Jesus Christ pulls you out of that. He's then forgiven you of your sin, washed you clean as far as the east is from the west. He's then adopted you and brought you into the very family of God. And as you sit at the table wondering, what if I ever get removed from the table? He says, you never will. For heaven is going to be your home. And it will always be your home. Because upon salvation, you have been sealed by the king with the promised Holy Spirit. It's no wonder then that the Apostle Paul was rather excited, don't you think? 
he is absolutely buzzing as he wants to tell the church about this. He's so excited as he tells them and tours them around this stage of wonders that is indeed theirs. Well, my friends, as we close, I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, this stage, filled with its prizes, is open to all. The doors on this stage are not locked. They're not just given to a select few that have to earn their rights to win. Though God himself says, whosoever will. John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Every single individual gets to stand by the stage and at some point has a dude like me or a friend like you've got telling you about Jesus, telling you about the glorious stage of wonders, the opportunity that you have to enter onto the stage and be forgiven of your sin and redeemed and adopted and know without doubt that heaven is your home. But how do you walk on the stage? Now he tells you, for whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, if you believed in him, if you haven't, then don't go home today without making it very clear, Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you died and rose again for me. And I believe that you're God, and therefore I need to take you as my king. I believe in you. The Bible makes it clear at that point, Jesus himself takes you and puts you on the stage. It's scandalous grace, but it's all the rest of us of God. None of us have earned our salvation. None of us can't be included in our salvation because the key word there in John 3.16 is whoever. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what has taken place in your life. If you will put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior in this moment, then you will be saved. Don't go home without doing that. If you've got questions about it, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the leaders. Come and talk to the person who brought you. We, we want to talk to you about this truth. Because if I'm wrong, then we're all wasting our time and it's not true for anybody. But if I'm right, it's true for every human being in the universe. This is important. I believe it's true with all my life. So believe in him and know this life. If you're here today and you are a Christian... You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But how good it is to know that he is risen, don't you think? Death could not hold him. He rose again. And in rising again, it's like God opened the curtains on this stage for us and said, Now, I raised my son. It is indeed finished. Who wants in? Well, if you're a Christian, you want it in. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So how do you apply this text? What do you do with it? You just go away and think, that's amazing. I think there is application. And it comes in the first few words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that the Apostle Paul is showing us around the stage of wonders. But if you were to look in the Apostle Paul's eyes, what you would discover is he's not looking at you. Throughout this whole sentence, he doesn't even realize you're there. He's hoping you're there. And he's anticipating you're there. 
But as he pens this, he's not looking at you. He's looking at him. And that's the whole way this sentence is written. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus. His gaze is upward, and all the time his premise is to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. My friends, as Christians then, knowing the stage is ours, would our lives do the same, amen? Would it all be to the praise of his glorious grace? Because Jesus has indeed paid it all. Let's pray. Lord, I, I am freshly amazed and excited and grateful for what you've done for us. Lord, thank you for coming and dying on a cross. Thank you that death could not hold you. Thank you that you were the person that you always said you were. Lord, what hope that brings, what joy that brings, what zeal that brings us as we realize you are God. You came to earth for mankind and made a way for us to enjoy the stage of wonders. Lord, thank you through your word. Thank you for touring us around this stage of wonders. It is scandalous grace that we can be forgiven and adopted and redeemed and know that heaven is our home with it being a guarantee through your Holy Spirit. Lord, would all of our lives then scream to you that it is all about your grace. Would all of our breath and all of our being and all of our energy point our gaze to you? Would it all be for the praise of your glorious grace? Because Jesus, although this stage to us was free, it cost you everything. Father, Father, thank you for sending your son. Father, I can barely imagine what that would be like to send a child into pain and anguish knowing that you will have to pour your anger and wrath out on them. One you dearly love. Savior, thank you for coming. Thank you for leaving your father's side. And thank you for dying in our place. I thank you for rising again. Oh Lord, I thank you that you are now ascended and united with your Father again. And you now sit at his right hand so our lives say to you, thank you. Would it all be the praise of your glorious grace?